0: raise the flag
1: light the cauldron we We declare declare the the games Odyssey odyssey open
0: welcome to the games odyssey podcast your home for stories of glory from olympia to now i'm jonathan jordan
1: and i'm sarah patton
0: And today's episode is our second part on the OG Olympic Games. That is the original Olympic Games that happened at Olympia in Greece. So if you haven't taken a listen to part one yet, then I'd strongly encourage you to go back and do that. Or some of this will probably not make complete sense. But you know what? You do you. Maybe you like to be confused. Uh, So... Kind of the main things you need to know is that the OG Games uh, started out as a religious festival with an enormous barbecue dedicated to Zeus in the middle of a five-day event for all Greek, well, all Greek males to participate in.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and the Games took place at Olympia, not Mount Olympus, and they went on for at least 1,200 years, but maybe more.
0: Yeah, and during that time, there were a total of 23 events. No more than 20 were ever featured in one games, and that included categories like running, jumping, discus, javelin, wrestling, an armor race, chariot racing, and trumpeting. So if that sounds interesting and you haven't listened to that episode, this is your opportunity to go find out what that looked like.
1: And we also learned that Olympiads were named after the winner of the stadion foot race. And all winners received a wreath of victory, plus some other fun things we'll talk about here in a few minutes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And also in this episode, we are going to chat more specifically about the athletes who actually participated, some of the ones that we have stories about. Um, In other words, these are the people who would have been on the Wheaties box if the ancient Greeks had had Wheaties.
1: All right, we're going to kick off talking about the athletes, and athletes represented their native cities, much like today, athletes represent their native countries. Uh, the athletes had to be genuinely Greek, 100% Greek, not barbarian, and they had to prove their citizenship. <laughs> Participation was limited to freeborn male citizens of Greece. Those slaves would be used as chariot drivers due to the danger, which we talked about in the last episode. Um, it was the owners that would be awarded the victory, not the drivers. Uh, right. There were great colonies in Italy at the time, which helped pave the way for Rome, taking it over along with, well, you know how it goes the rest of the world.
0: I love that line that came from the research about not barbarian. Um, and <laughs> I was just like, okay, so how do you prove that you are not a barbarian? Well, it turns out they did have to prove their ancestry. Uh, They could present a genealogy, a family tree. And so a lot of times, competitors, we found out they would trace it back to ancient Greek heroes. Um, I guess there was some sort of 23 in Greek app that they could use. And, you know, it reminds me a lot of that movie A Knight's Tale, right, where uh, the late Heath Ledger... You know, starred in that movie and he had to present his patents papers, I think is what they called them. Uh, But, yeah, similar idea. You you didn't necessarily have to be elite, but you had to be Greek. And apparently Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, he had a little bit of trouble proving that he was Greek enough to be a competitor so he simplified things by uh, invading the area where Olympia was located, uh, building a temple there, and that settled the issue once and for all. And that seemed to make people happy. So he got to compete eventually.
1: <laughs> That's That might be one of my new favorite stories. Um... Yeah, it's pretty great. All free Greek males were allowed to take part from farmhands to royal heirs. Although no surprise, the majority of Olympians were soldiers with what we know about the history of sport and that so many sports came about from military training and being ready to fight the enemy. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Excluded from the Olympics were slaves, murderers, those convicted (laughs) of defiling temples (laughs) and those who had disrespected the truth. Um, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to compete with no murderers, especially when they have a javelin or a discus to throw at me. Are you kidding me? Uh, Yeah. Cities could be banned in this last category, including Sparta being banned from the 420 BC games. Uh, They objected to this, saying that the (laughs) truce had not started yet. So I guess they believed that they could get by on a technicality, but it didn't work out for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it is interesting that, you know, we talk about countries getting banned now, and we've seen that happen multiple times on top of boycotts and things of that nature. So it's interesting that that could happen back then as well. Um, And I just want to be in the room for that conversation about whether the truce had started yet and then being like, no, no, no. This is what it said on the sundial. The truce had not (laughs) begun yet. We still had three minutes to be able to attack this guy if we wanted to. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Athletes arrived at Olympia one month before the games would begin. And they had to declare that they had been training for at least 10 months. Zeistos was the training facility for runners and pentathletes. Uh, The wrestlers and boxers trained in a facility called the Mm Tetragano. And then you had the Bulleterion. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is the Olympic Senate where they would take the oath of Olympia before the judges and promise not to cheat. And I'm sure that nobody ever broke that (laughs) promise.
0: Yeah. You know, this really was interesting to me because I had never heard of this Bolitaryon before. This idea of this Olympic Senate, but it makes sense because Greece was the birthplace of democracy. So this was kind of the early IOC, right? These officials who administered the oath to the Olympians and made them promise not to cheat. Uh, now we'll talk about that again here in a little bit, but uh, but it is cool that there was this early form of sports government taking place with the Olympic Games. Um, Now, we talked about this kind of briefly in part one, but one of the things that everybody knows about the ancient Olympics um, is that the competitors were naked, right? That's something you hear all the time. But for me, the question was, well, how naked and how accurate uh, is that? So apparently during the first few centuries, it does appear that athletes would be clothed, but they would roll up their tunics. Um, and it wasn't until later when suddenly they just said, yeah, there's not going to be any you know, clothing at all. Uh, one fun fact that I found out while doing this research is that uh, Boris Johnson, who at the time of this recording is the current prime minister of England, but during the 2012 London games, he was the mayor of London and, um, he was involved with some of the planning, and he suggested that they should bring the Naked Run back for the London Games, that they should have, like, an exhibition. I think we're all glad that he did not get his way on that
1: one. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I can't um, imagine he had too much support for that.
0: But as far as the legends around how they decided to take off their clothes and start competing naked. Um, The story is that there was this guy named Orsippos um, or or Orhippos. It depends on the source and how you choose to pronounce the ancient Greek. Uh, But the story is that he was running in the stadion in 720 BC and he lost his shorts. Um, Now, some say that he tore them off on purpose so that he could go faster. Some say it was an accident. Either way, this is the story behind the nude tradition. Um, Now, there's another story that says this was started by the Spartans, that they decided to compete that way, and then everyone just kind of followed suit for whatever reason. Uh, But either way, by the late 8th century, it does appear that uh, nudity was very common among the male contestants. And as we talked about in the last episode, Uh, Later on, the coaches (laughs) and the trainers were also required to not be wearing anything because there was a woman who snuck in because she was coaching her son. Um, Now, in one of the documentaries I watched while preparing for this episode There were actually these Greek historians who said that they don't think that the athletes were competing nude. And I thought this was interesting because I'd never heard this perspective before. Essentially, they proposed the idea that it would have been too dangerous. It would have been too impractical, but that we're basing that off of artwork. And as we know, a lot of Greek artwork, people are just nude everywhere. Right. So. The, this they're kind of my minority view, but they're proposing that maybe they didn't wear a ton of clothes, but they probably wore some. You know, again, we can't know for sure until uh, we can jump into a DeLorean and go back in time to see for ourselves. But I thought that was an interesting perspective. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think it's one of those things that we do just kind of have to take history with a grain of salt with what we know. Yeah. And Yeah, that everyone has different interpretations, but it's crazy to imagine them competing completely naked, but it's also believable that it could have happened. So, yeah, um, yeah, we tend to like to focus
0: on the sensational a lot of times and maybe make things bigger than they actually were. But as we talked about in part one of the episode, there were some events that seemed to indicate that, yeah, they weren't wearing a whole lot of anything, like when we Mm -hmm. talked about the... Pankration and wrestling where they would oil up so at least in those events we know that yeah maybe they were wearing some sort of loincloth Tarzan style Uh, but it was interesting to me to hear these Greek historians kind of debating this fact that everyone knows about the ancient games Um, but anyway Let's let's move past that. That's not going to be the main topic here. Um, so let's talk about a little bit of what did the winners get exactly? Did they get medals? Did they get Nike sponsorships? I mean, Nike is the Greek goddess of victory. So what did that look like for them?
1: So the judges, which the Greek name for the judges is Um But from here on out, we'll probably just refer to them as the judges. And they gave <laughs> out the... Victory crowns, which were the cotinos, of wild olive leaves and an olive leaf branch cut from the sacred tree kallistephanos, to each event winner. The olive trees at Olympia were believed to have been planted by Hercules himself. This was a (laughs) tradition that was brought back for the inaugural 1896 games and the 2004 games both which took place in Athens. So if you're listening to this and you were around in 2004, I remember seeing the athletes get the olive wreaths on their heads um, and that being a pretty big deal. So I wonder if any other Olympic games will bring them back or maybe just any time that the games take place in Athens, which I think makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things that it kind of would be fun to see at every Olympic Games, but it's also kind of special that being just a Greek thing and paying homage to their history. Um, But yeah, I remember that from the 2004 Games. I thought that was such a cool touch uh, to just change up the medal ceremony a little bit Mm -hmm. from what we had always seen.
1: More importantly than anything else, you were winning immortal glory, fame, and immortality through the victor's list, statues, and victory ode. So people were competing for the bragging rights um, that, yeah, more than anything tangible, this brought fame and glory to their families. Um, it, It was much more significant than anything else to be able to claim that title, It was Mm. winner takes all. So there were no second or third place prizes. Um, The winner took everything, which once again, glory, fame, all the things. The Athenians that competed, um, if they won, then they got free meals for the rest of their life, courtesy of Athens. So that's a pretty good deal.
0: Uh, (laughs) I'll take it. Like, three meals for the rest of my life for winning. Done. Like, forget the medal. I'll take the food.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty great. Um, When Spartans won, they would get the crown, and they got an additional prize back home. Which was standing next to the king in the front line of battle.
0: <laughs> so you win at the Olympics and your prize is you get to be the first one to go out in <laughs> battle. Yay! Yeah.
1: I, oh man, I'm sure that they considered that an honor, but I, I'd be like, yeah, I'm good with second. Thank you.
0: <laughs> it's, it sounds very Spartan. I love it. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: Another prize could be a red woolen ribbon, which was worn on the upper arm or around the head, often given to the chariot driver to honor them since they would not get the wreath. So at least they got that. um, They got a scarf out of it. Yeah, they got got to show with their little red ribbon that they won. Um, Still don't know if it'd be worth it, but they also didn't really have a choice. So here we are. Uh, victors would be welcomed back as heroes in their hometowns. They would enter the city in a four horse chariot in a procession. Banquets were held in their honor and they received additional benefits such as exemption from taxes, or they would get to join the political elite. So I think that's really interesting because, you know, here in the United States, we're a little bit unique compared to other countries in that Mm -hmm. our athletes don't receive any government funding. Um right. Nothing like that. Of course, they get sometimes parades in their hometowns whenever they go and compete. Sometimes even if they don't win a medal, they get parades because it's exciting. It's something to be proud of. Um, So yeah. when we're thinking about these processions, that's what comes to mind is parades. But around the rest of the world, there are athletes that when they win medals, especially from some of the smaller countries, they mm-hmm. are considered part of the elite from here on out. Sometimes they're awarded like ten acres of land and cows and so much fame and recognition um, that I just I think that's really interesting that even now we see much more than just the medal that they get. Um, that in some countries this literally sets them up for the rest of their life.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I love the idea of being exempt from taxes for being uh-huh. an Olympic victor. Uh, that. Along with the free food, that sounds pretty great. Uh, But, yeah, it does kind of pay homage to this, what we see happening today, where a lot of times Olympic athletes uh, do get to become celebrities in their own right and even be able to make a a difference in their country because people pay attention to them, right? And they Mm -hmm. are the pride of their country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Some cities offered financial incentives, salone offering 500 drachmas as a prize. Do you call it drachmas? Yeah, no, drachmas
0: is correct. I have no idea what that translates to in today's dollars, but cool. You uh, apparently some of them, yeah, gave out money if you came back a champion.
1: (laughs) Uh, Cash prizes came along later on, where athletes became paid professionals and the spirit of competition for honor and valor diminished under the Roman stewardship of the games. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> one of the least surprising things to learn about with the old Olympics, money became the driving force behind the games.
0: Yeah. So the the eternal glory, the honoring your hometown, that kind of started to take a back seat Uh, Sounds like under the Romans and, you know, that kind of, I'm sure, tarnished the games a bit, Mm -hmm. Um, which kind of leads us into our next little topic here of the fact that, again, Breaking news here, but cheats did exist in the ancient Olympic Games, uh, especially if there were these financial opportunities, right? And that made people want to start to bend the rules a little bit. Um, Now, breaking the rules did carry penalties uh, like exclusion. From you know, not just that games. But ever being able to participate again. You could get fined. You could get flogged for cheating. Um, if athletes. Uh, if they refuse to pay the fine. Then their city. Might even be excluded from the games. So it, it was. You know it wasn't just about. The consequences for themselves. They, they were impacting. People from their city being able to participate. So it was a big deal. And obviously. They did that as a detractor, hopefully, (laughs) from cheating. Um, Now, here was one of my favorite things that I found out, is that when you paid a fine because you were caught cheating, you paid it to the sanctuary because, of course, the heart of the ancient Olympic Games was the religious side of it. So you paid your fine to the sanctuary, and, uh, and it went to... Uh, The offended athlete as well. So if it was, you know, wrestling, you paid a fine to to them as well, whoever you were competing against. Now, revenue from those fines were used in part to set up something called the Xanus, which were statues of Zeus with bases where it would actually list the offenders. So... This was something that you could see visiting Olympia. They had this kind of walk of shame, if you will, where you had (laughs) these statues of Zeus and each one labeled with the name of a cheater. Um, So you can imagine what it would be like walking past that. And that being just a a good reminder of like, Hey, if you cheat and you get caught, like you're going to have to pay for a statue and everyone for all of eternity is going to know you as a cheater. So those were some of the things they had in place to try to discourage cheating, but obviously it still happened, or we wouldn't have found those statues to begin with. But
1: do you think, um, um, do you think that a wall of shame of sorts would be effective today? I mean, I feel like we have a virtual one just by nature look, of news have... headlines. <laughs>
0: We have the internet. That is the ultimate wall of shame. So we don't really need anything like that anymore. But um, it still but...
1: doesn't prevent the cheaters. Looking at you, <laughs> Russia.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole other topic, right? But... <laughs> uh, um... And definitely one we'll cover at some point, but let's, uh, let's leave the cheaters behind for now. Uh, they've gotten enough attention and let's talk about, uh, you know, winner, winner, Euro dinners. Okay. Um, so Olympic champions of old, uh, that is, um, you know, there were men and spoiler alert. There were some women who were also Olympic champions, which I'm excited to talk about here in a minute. Uh, But anyway, they didn't get Nike sponsorships. uh, They didn't get gold medals, as we've already talked about. Um, Now, you know, we do have this tradition still on the Olympic medals. They all feature Nike, the Greek goddess of victory, which I think is a pretty cool tradition that we've brought into the modern medal ceremony. Uh, But let's talk about some of the actual winners. Who were these people? Who were these ancient Olympians? Uh, We're going to start with talking about running because that was the original event. So, the first known documented Olympic champion of all time is this guy named Koirobas. Uh he was a cook from the nearby city of Ellis, uh not nearby to us, obviously, but nearby to Olympia. And he won the stadion race in 7070 70, or 776. BC so that Olympiad was named after him so he is he will always hold the status as the first known Olympic champion since that was the only event that they had back then um now There was also a guy named uh, Oripus of Megara, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, He's the 720 BC victor, who reportedly tore off his loincloth, starting the new tradition. There's also Croton, who was actually from one of those southern Italy-Grecian colonies, who won three consecutive stadion races from 488 to 480 BC. Uh, So essentially, he was like the Usain Bolt of the OG game. Winning those three games in a row. And then uh, we also had Alexander the First of Macedon. Now, that's not Alexander the Great, but he was a competitor and he won the stadium. Uh, then there was Hermogenes of Xanthos. Uh, that's a daunting name in and of itself, Hermogenes <laughs> of Xanthos. He was nicknamed the Horse and he won. Eight running events over three Olympiads between 81 and 89 AD. That was during the Roman era. Uh, So, yeah, he is remembered as probably the most decorated just for running events. Now, that begs the question, were there athletes who could compete in more than one event? Uh, I mean, Sarah, we see people do that today, right?
1: Right, and not just with um, more than one event within a summer Olympics. Sometimes you have athletes that do summer and winter sports mm-hmm. that compete yeah. up both winter and summer Olympics.
0: Yeah, and and maybe multi sport is a better way of looking at it because of course Mm -hmm. you have swimmers who are in like 30 different events in one Olympics. Um, but, but yeah, we have had athletes who we sometimes see in different disciplines, which is challenging enough because one already sucks up so much of your time. Uh, but in ancient Greece, we saw the same thing happening of there being specific Olympians who did compete in multiple events. So, uh, the first one we're going to talk about is this guy named, uh, of, uh, Feline, uh, that's Thanos, not Thanos. Okay, uh, let's not get those two confused. Uh, but he won three events in the Olympics of uh, 521 BC. Uh, so, what he won was the stadion. The Dialos, uh, which is another running event. And then he won the race in armor, the Hoplite race that we talked about in the last episode. Now, technically, those are all three running events. But um, as we kind of mentioned before, that armor event was pretty challenging and different from the other foot races. Uh, Next, we've got a Stylos of Croton, who won six crowns across three Olympiads. 488, 484, and 480 B.C. He won both the Stadion and the Dialus in 488 B.C. And then he switched his allegiance from Croton to run for the city-state of Syracuse in 484 and 480 B.C., uh, winning both. Um, The people of Croton didn't like that he (laughs) switched to a different city-state. So they turned his family home into a prison. But I'm trying to think, you know, we might have to do an episode at some point on modern Olympians who have competed for uh, more than one country. Because I know there's been I know there's been a few. So, yeah,
1: there's there's been several and there's always a really interesting story behind them. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. it's not just because of political unrest, but sometimes the symbolism, heritage, but obviously we'll get into that another day. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And then I also found this story on Wikipedia, uh this guy, um uh, this Greek historian, uh, Pausanias, uh he explained a situation about this one athlete named uh Sotades. Uh so Sotades uh was at the 99th Olympiad Uh, he was victorious in the long race we talked about the endurance race in the last episode and he was proclaimed a Cretan um as in fact he actually was uh so at the next festival he made himself an Ephesian because he was bribed to do so by the Ephesian people um (laughs) now for Uh, for that act, uh, he was banished by his, uh, you know, fellow Cretans. So he was not allowed to go back to uh, Crete. Um, but I guess the Ephesians took him in at that point. Then you had Leonidas of Rhodes, who won all three. Foot race events, Stadion, Dialos, and the race in armor. And he won those across four consecutive Olympics between 164 and 152 BC. Uh, He was 36 years old by the time he won his 12th Olympic wreath. So, incredibly decorated career for him as well.
1: Yeah. So, I'm actually going to put you on the spot. Do you remember Mm -hmm. just a few years ago, he actually made headlines? Do you know? This guy, Leonidas of Rhodes. Do you know why?
0: I I don't. I know I've heard his name before even doing this research, but I don't remember what the reason was. So please illuminate me.
1: So I believe he was the most decorated ancient Olympian. And mm-hmm. in 2016, Michael Phelps broke his record for not just modern Olympics, That's right. but all-time champion. But yeah, I remember it being a huge deal when Michael Phelps broke his long-standing record that was over 2,000 years old.
0: Next up, we have Kyanis of Sparta. He was a three-time Stadion Dialis winner and also a champion jumper. So we haven't mentioned anyone doing long jump yet, uh, but he, uh, he did pretty well at that as well. Uh then we have this guy named uh Theognis of Thasos. He was a boxer. Uh he participated in the Pankration, which we talked about in the last episode, and he was a runner. Uh so he was a winner of the Pankration at the 76th Olympiad, which happened in 476 BC, and then he won boxing of uh, at the 480 BC games. Now he was born on the island of Thasos, and he was the son of a priest of the Temple of Heracles. And locals believed that he was actually a descendant of the demigod Heracles himself. Uh, now, he was apparently a very large man, and he ended up touring around the Mediterranean area and competing in various uh, games. And According to the source that I read, he won more than fourteen hundred matches and victory wreaths. Uh, Again, not all of those were (laughs) at the Olympic Games. Obviously, this was when the idea of sports competition started spreading around the Mediterranean world. Okay, and there's a myth that says that a statue of him was erected in Thessos, and apparently, one of his opponents didn't like seeing his rival commemorated in this way, and so he came up to the statue. And he started whipping the statue. And then according to this uh, myth, legend, whatever you want to call it, apparently the statue is said to have fallen over and killed the man. So even in his death, the agonies was victorious.
1: <laughs> what a legacy.
0: Yeah. You just, you just can't keep that guy down. Even when he's dead, his statue will come after you if, if you were his rival. So. Now, let's talk a little bit about chariot racing, because as we mentioned in part one, it was an incredibly popular event. Of course, a lot of the legends about where the Olympic Games came from was that famous uh, mythological chariot race with Pelops. So we alluded to Philip of Macedon earlier, the father of Alexander the Great, how he had trouble proving that he was Greek enough. But we didn't talk about what event he was trying to get in for. He wanted to have his horses in the chariot race. And here's the thing. He ended up winning, but he wasn't even present at the Olympiad when that happened. So, again, there was this weird situation with the chariot racing where because the owner was awarded and not the chariot driver, you didn't have to physically be there uh, and you could still be a winner. Then we've also got this guy named uh, Farinikos, who was the most famous race horser or whatever you would call him, I guess, in antiquity. That was a quote that I found uh, in some (laughs) of my research. And that was, he competed during the 470s BC era. So he was in multiple um, Olympiads, or he wasn't, but his horses were, I should say. Then there was the Athenian general and statesman, uh, Alcibiades, who won three chariot races in 416 BC. If you listen to part one, you know that there was more than just one chariot race. And so he had multiple sets of horses in these different races and won three of them, which is impressive. And then uh, we've got uh, Philip II of Macedon, who won horse race as well. So there was a family legacy there uh, in 356 BC and um, repeated his that winning streak in the chariot races of 352 and 348 uh, BC. Now, we're getting to one of the most exciting parts of this uh, Sarah, have you ever heard, yeah, have you ever heard of Kyniska or Kynistra, depending on the source?
1: Not before preparing for this episode.
0: Yeah. So, Kyniska, in 392 BC, uh, she became the first woman to win the crown of victory and officially be declared a Olympic champion. So, this lady was brilliant. (laughs) She had her sights set on Olympic glory from a very early age. We talked about how unmarried women could attend the Olympic Games. And so it appears that she may have attended when she was a child and she was the sister of the king of Sparta. So she was literally royalty and probably that's how she was able to attend before she got married. And she figured out that because the owner... Of the horses in the chariot race. Was declared the winner. She could use that as a loophole. To win. Um, so she. She. Again, no one caught that. And so she entered her horses, and technically she had followed the rules. So uh, she won in 392, as I already mentioned. She also won in 396 BC. Uh, She erected at least two life-size bronze statues of herself at Olympia as kind of, a, I guess, a reminder to the men of what she had done in defiance of the no female rule, and there's an inscription on a remaining fragment from one of those statues that archaeologists have found. Um, And so, uh, Sarah, I want you to read what was on that inscription.
1: Kings of Sparta were my fathers and brothers. I, Kyniska, victorious at the chariot race, with her swift-footed horses, erected this statue— I claim that I am the only woman in all Greece who won this crown.
0: That's pretty amazing. Uh, I love her. I love
1: it. (laughs) Yep. I'm a fan. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, again, she's just very clever and figured out, look, I'm going to be an Olympic champ and I'm going to find a way to do it. And she did. And she wasn't the last one to do it. They didn't change the rules because of her. She ended up being copied by a good number of other women, um, especially among the Spartans. Uh, They apparently wanted to follow in her footsteps. And so there were a number of women Olympic champions, specifically in chariot racing, because of her breaking this, uh, you know, precedence and doing what she did.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's fantastic.
0: All right, so while we're still absorbing the wonderful legacy of Kyniska, uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about some winners in wrestling. Uh, There was uh, Mylon of Croton, who won wrestling about five or six times from what we know, from 532 to 516 BC. He apparently was also very huge, which... Makes sense as a wrestler and he reportedly carried a cow into the sanctuary of zeus on his back killed it and then ate the whole cow himself in a single day we don't know if that's true but i really there's a part of me that really wants that story to be true
1: i'm gonna believe it it's true it's true in my brain
0: It's it's got to be he's also reported to have downed nine liters of red wine in one go and led his army into battle wearing a lion skin on his back, a crown on his head and carrying a club. Um, So he was just extra and embraced it in every way possible in his last games he participated in, he's estimated to have been about 38 to 40 years old. Uh, that was his seventh Olympic Games. And he ended up conceding defeat uh, in the wrestling match to a 28-year-old whose name was uh, Timosathias. But the crowd, including uh lifted him up to celebrate and cheer his legacy of wrestling. Uh, reportedly, he was uh, tangled in a tree in the wild because he was trying to split its withered stump with his bare hands. And then he was eaten by wolves. I mean, if you're going to live a big life like it sounds like he did, I guess you kind of have to go out in a memorable way as well. Yeah. <laughs> but...
1: <laughs> what, what a guy. What a yeah. guy. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um anyway, so yeah, that's Mylon of Croton. Uh there was also this guy named Erikayan of uh Figalia, uh, whose wrestling victory was really unusual because he died. And we kind of alluded no. to this in part one. Uh he died while successfully defending his title as Olympic champ during the 54th Olympiad, which was in 564 BC. Uh, so he was a- asphyxiated during the match. But as you might recall from part one. The rule behind wrestling. Was about not giving up. And so. You might recall. You had to lift up your finger. To show that you were bowing out. Well the competitor. Was so exhausted and worn out. That he lifted up his finger. His finger to show that he was resigning from the match. Because he was in so much pain. But he didn't realize. That Eric Kion was dead. And so technically, Ericaion won because he didn't give up. So he was posthumously awarded an Olympic wreath. Um,
1: I wonder if the competitor regrets raising his, a- <laughs> raising right. his yeah, finger. Cause he, yeah,
0: because he didn't know that Ericayan was dead. And so you have to think maybe there's a mo- moment of like, man, if I had just held on for three more seconds for the judges to notice that he wasn't breathing, I would have been the Olympic champion right um and so that's what he's remembered for is that he gave up and erikian did did not to his last breath literally so uh thankfully we've changed the rules and the way that they win yeah. <laughs> yeah um then there was another guy who we have to mention before we move on from wrestling who's uh Hipposthenes and his son Eta Uh, who, between the two of them, they won 11 Olympic wreaths in wrestling. So a little father-son duo winning tradition there.
1: No pressure.
0: Yeah, no pressure at all. But, I mean, he lived up to it, obviously. Um, Now let's talk a little bit about boxing, because there were a few standouts uh, that I found out there. Uh, there was a uh, Diagoras of Rhodes. He was a victor at the 79th Olympiad. In 464 BC. Uh, he was 2.2 meters tall. For those of us. In the US. That's just over 7 feet tall. And. Um, his story and explanation for that. Was that his mother. Had conceived him with a god. So he he was claiming he was a demigod. Uh, kind of like Hercules. And uh, he had this nickname, and I'm not going to say the the Greek because there's no way I'm going to say it correctly, but translated, his nickname was Fair Fighter because he would stand face on to an opponent and he would never duck. He would never weave or sway out of the way of his opponent's punches. He would just take it. He also had a legacy because his three sons won five Olympic titles between them, and he got to watch one of his sons win the boxing title and another win pankration, and both of them gave their father their crown, which was a huge delight to the crowd. I mean, I can I can just see the NBC uh, profile on on that mm-hmm. story, right? It'll be
1: replayed <laughs> for years to come.
0: Yeah. Uh, Supposedly, the story goes that someone in the crowd uh, lifted him up and said, surely it doesn't get any better than this. You may as well die now, at which point he did just that. So there you go. He went out on top. Um, Now, there was also a guy named Pythagoras of Samos. He was a long haired boxer who turned up to compete in the the boys' competition. So we talked about how there were youth Olympic games (laughs) in the ancient Olympics. And so he showed up to compete uh, for the boys' group in 588 B.C., but he was barred from it, uh, and this is from the research, this is not my opinion, he was barred due to his effeminate appearance. So he said, fine. And he switched over to the men's competition and won, even though he was probably one of the youngest competitors. If he was trying to get into the, the boys' event first,
1: good um, for him.
0: Yeah. So he was like, "Look, I'm I'm going to embrace my appearance. I'm going to compete as a man against competitors older and more experienced than me." And, and he he won the thing. So um, then there's also a guy named Veristades uh, who was. A boxer. Uh, he was a prince. He became the king of uh, Armenia, and he's the last known ancient Olympic victor in boxing during the 291st Olympic Games during the 4th century AD. So boxing uh, stuck around for a long time in the ancient Olympic Games. Now, there are a few famous uh, Pincration competitors as well. Uh, there was Sostratus of Sisyon, who was notorious for his finger-breaking technique. And I don't know what else to say <laughs> about Ouch. that. Yeah. So again, Pankration, th- there were very few rules. As long as you weren't gouging people's eyes, and as long as you weren't biting, finger-breaking, completely legal to do. Um, there was also a guy named uh, uh which sounds like some type of medicine that you would take but that was his name and he was crowned champion by default in 336 BC uh, because no other uh, competitor dared to go against him <laughs> and now we've got to talk about probably the most notorious ancient Olympic athlete of all time and I use the term athlete very very loosely here <laughs> We've got to talk about Emperor Nero. Um, You may have heard of him. That guy. So first off, let's start with the fact that he decided to move the date of the Olympiad up by two years to uh, 67 AD. One source I read said it got moved to 65 AD, so that's a little fuzzy Either way, both sources agreed he purposely moved up the Olympic Games by two years because he was the emperor and no one was going to argue with him about that. And he did that because that was when he wanted to compete. He didn't want to wait the extra two years to be a part of it. Um, And then he made all of the events that he participated in, things that he was good at. And again, I say good very loosely So here were some of the events that he added to the Olympic Games the year he competed. Poetry reading. Music, (laughs) which, to be fair, there was the trumpeting competition. Sure, sure. And there were flute players during the long jump, as we talked about. But uh, he decided to make it an event all of its own. Um, He also competed in the chariot race. And here's what I'll give him credit for. Uh he didn't send someone to do it for him. He wanted to actually drive the chariot himself. Um now Nero had a lot of issues, which there's probably other podcasts about that that you can go listen to. And reportedly the chariot that he drove was a 10-horse chariot. So not only did he want to drive it himself, he wanted to have a few extra horses on there for show. Um despite that horsepower. Pun intended. Uh, He didn't win. (laughs) Shocker. Because he fell off. But. Hold on. He was declared the winner anyway. Because the reasoning was he would have won if he hadn't fallen off.
1: What a spoiled child.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So he won. Again. Big air quotes around that word. Um, All of his events. People were paid to cheer for him apparently. Now, after his assassination, the Olympic judges repaid the bribes that he had made, and they declared the Neronian Olympiad to be completely void. So it was essentially wiped off the record, but it's still on the record because there were other events happening that he didn't compete in. So it, it kind of put the the ancient version of the IOC in a really awkward position, uh, to say the least. But... But yeah, so ladies and gentlemen, that's, uh, that's Emperor Nero for you.
1: (laughs) And his appearance at the Olympic Games is probably what you would have expected. You know, not to end
0: the athletes section on a sour note, uh, but Sarah, who else was involved in the Olympic Games? We've talked about some of them vaguely, but let's, let's get a little bit more specific. Who was there?
1: Well, we had to have judges, of course. And yeah. the judges, they wore red or purple togas, so they stood out. They yeah. um there were trained judges from Ellis who also had various assistants, such as the tie, which were police officers. Uh so for they the had first
0: bouncers, essentially mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. ancient Olympics. Got it. Yeah, okay.
1: bouncers. That's a good way to put it. For yeah. the first forty nine Olympics, only one judge was joined by others to reach a peak of twelve. Originally, it was a hereditary office and for life. But later on, Hmm. they were selected by lot. They could disqualify and fine athletes for infringement of the rules. Um, They were also given special seats of honor. Their decisions could not be revoked, but they were subject to judgment from a council of elders that an athlete could appeal. If Hmm. successful, the judge could be fined. So, you know, they tried to keep the corruption At bay for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was obviously not foolproof, but at least they tried to have some guidelines there. Um, Yeah.
0: It's interesting that it was like a lifelong thing in the beginning, Uh that once you became an Olympic judge, you were always an Olympic judge. Um, I don't know how I feel about that for the modern Olympics, but I think it's an interesting concept.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, In addition to the judges, you had professional trainers, uh, or physical Mm -hmm. trainers who knew how to develop particular muscles. They monitored athlete Mm. diets and exercise. Sometimes they had statues dedicated to them from the athletes, which I think is pretty nice. Yeah. And that's (laughs) a lot similar to what we have now with, you have a team of doctors, physicians, um, nutritionists, dietitians that can help athletes be more well-rounded. Um, In addition to the judges and the trainers, you also had trainers that were allowed to be on the field of competition, but they also had to be nude, which we've talked about, to make sure Mm -hmm. that none of us women folk were sneaking in.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Can't have female coaches, right? They would never be able to tell a a man how to compete the best because then they're giving them orders and we just can't have that. Yeah. Great. Got it.
1: (laughs) Now, finally, hopefully I say this right. You had the alictus. Tests,
0: yeah, I think that's right.
1: Uh, they would rub down the athletes with oil and they would massage them before and after exercise.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting that that concept existed as far back then because we we see techniques like that today, right? We mm-hmm. see athletes, uh, you know... Going to a chiropractor or going to a massage therapist or doing, I mean, we mentioned Michael Phelps earlier. He, of course, made cupping, you know, Uh very famous (laughs) and uh, all these different techniques, even myself. um, Now, I hate being touched by other people who I am not married to. Uh, but my wife had to talk me into, before my first marathon, she talked me into getting a sports massage. Uh, and it did it did help me because I found out that one of my legs was actually slightly longer than the other because the muscles weren't stretching right. And it, and it did help me out. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to think that some of these concepts of preparing for a competition have been around for literally thousands of years. You know, no research is complete without a miscellaneous section. So this is going to be that section. Um, The Olympic flame um, and torch tradition. um, You know, we talked about this kind of briefly in part one. So the cauldron really started in uh, 1928 in Amsterdam. Sarah, you've mentioned that you have been there uh, to that stadium. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then that kind of led a few years later to the idea of the torch relay for the 36 games in Berlin. Um, However, there does appear to have been some kind of tradition of a torch relay at other ancient Greek athletic festivals, including the ones that you mentioned earlier that were held at Athens. So we don't know for sure whether there was a torch or cauldron at the actual Olympic Games, but there is some evidence that that concept existed and it may have been there. Um, now, in 668 BC, Phidon of Argos captured the sanctuary of Olympia from the town of Elis. Uh, so we talked about in the previous episode that no one really lived in Olympia. The nearest city state was Ellis. So Fidon comes in. He takes control of Ellis. He controlled the games that happened that year. So that guy put himself in charge. Uh, but then Ellis was able to regain control of their region uh, the following year. So then uh, that's just kind of an interesting situation where a guy took over the Olympics for, for one year uh, besides (laughs) Nero. Let's take a quick break and then uh, we're going to jump in and talk a little bit about the late ancient Olympic games and stuff that Indiana Jones would like. Okay. Sounds good. So late Olympics and stuff. Indiana Jones would like, Uh, if you haven't figured that out, I'm talking about archeology. span because that's mostly how we've learned about the ancient games is by digging stuff up. So let's talk a little bit about what happened with the games and kind of how they started to decline. We mentioned it a little bit earlier with the bedding and it getting tainted a little bit in the Roman era. Uh, so the games did continue through the Hellenistic period. That's uh, that's the time period from the death of Alexander the Great until the rise of the Roman Empire. But during this phase of the games, more buildings were added to the site of Olympia. Uh, there were some additional comforts that were added for spectators because they knew every four years everyone would be coming into Town, And then there was an increase in professionalism and specialization for athletes. So in other words, athletes really just started honing in on, I want to do this specific event rather than trying to compete in everything. Uh, there was a ruthless uh, Roman military commander whose name was Sulla, and he robbed Olympia in 86 BC so that he could finance a war. And he hosted the games in 80 BC. He moved the Olympic games to Rome. So it's the one and only time that the ancient games that we know of, uh, appears to have officially been held outside of Olympia and was held in Rome instead. Um... Now, according to some research from our friends at Wikipedia, under the rule of Emperor Augustus, uh, the games went through a revival. So I, I don't want to completely dog the Romans because they did continue the games. And there was this period of time where they did try to improve them. Uh, so Augustus's right-hand man was this guy named Marcus Agrippa. And he restored the damaged temple of Zeus. And in 12 BC, Augustus actually asked King Herod, Of Judea to help subsidize the games so that they could improve them. In the early years of Augustus's reign, uh, some of his associates, including the future emperor Tiberius, won in the four horse chariot. And uh, apparently, like Nero, he actually steered the chariot himself. So it's really interesting that you had a few of these Romans slipping in, uh, but if they did it, uh, they really wanted to be involved (laughs) if they were doing Mm -hmm. the chariot racing. Now, the Romans did start to copy some of the events in their circuses happening around the empire, uh, which, you know, we know about the gladiator events. Uh, Those have been made a big deal of. And then under the emperors Hadrian and Antonius Pius, the games continued to gain popularity. So there is proof that there was kind of an early international effort behind it. Uh, The official Olympic Games only happened there at Olympia, but all these other events that were happening around the Roman Empire were inspired and spurred on. So we kind of see the beginning of some internationality happening with sports, which is pretty cool under the Roman Empire. Now, there is proof that the International Olympic Games continued until at least 385. Now, we fast-forwarded through a bunch of history because we only have so much time, but this is when the Roman Empire became Christianized, and you probably learned about that in history class. Uh, There was a rise in Christianity. Uh, Emperor Theodosius I ended up passing an edict in 391, 393, or 394. Different sources had different dates, (laughs) so... You know, and and that's just part of ancient history is because they didn't use the same calendar that we use and they didn't use the same dating system. It's a little vague, but what we do know is he passed an edict that didn't outright ban the Olympic Games themselves, but rather they banned the pagan sacrifices because of the religious component and everyone was supposed to be Christian now. You're not supposed to be worshiping Zeus, but... There was such a strong connection between the Olympic Games and the Zeus worship that it was it was hard to disconnect the two from one another from a cultural standpoint, if nothing else. Um, so it kind of effectively banned the games uh, because of the importance of the religious festival. However, it does appear that there were some efforts after that to keep them going and just focus on the sports, but they weren't as well documented as during the time of the official festivals. So most historians agree that 393 AD were the last official Olympic Games. Um, which ended a run of 293 recorded Olympic Games over the course of a millennium, which...
1: That's pretty impressive.
0: Now, as I already mentioned, there is some evidence that the Games kind of quietly continued for a while, and they just toned down the religious side and said, oh, it's about sports. And they eventually kind of petered out around 500 A.D., um, mm-hmm. Now, this also kind of synced up with the decline of the Roman Empire, right? So in the 5th century, things were not going super well for Rome anymore. Um, Olympia got pillaged by barbarian forces. There were earthquakes that uh, wreaked havoc on the buildings there in Olympia. And uh, there was also some flooding, so things got buried underneath soil and since no one was really living in Olympia anyway and only came there during the Olympiads with all those things happening, that it basically just got abandoned and forgotten for a while. I found this really great quote from Paul Christensen, who's a professor of ancient Greek history at Dartmouth uh, College here in the U.S. And he said, it's hard for us to exaggerate how important the Olympics were for the Greeks. Uh, And then he went on to say the classic example is that when the Persians invaded Greece in the summer of 480 B.C., a lot of the Greek city-states agreed that they would put together an allied army. But they had a very hard time getting one together because so many people wanted to go to the Olympics. So they actually had to delay putting the army together to defend the country against the Persians.
1: Well... That's funny, considering <laughs> that so much of Olympic glory was about being being ready to fight. Well, at least the history of sport. And it kind of yeah. had the opposite effect of being able to defend your city-state.
0: <laughs> well, but I think, I think it goes to say how it maybe did bring a level of peace among the right. Greek city-states, where they were able to put some of their differences aside more than what they were. And they were willing to ally together to face the Persians. And it became such an important part of their culture that, you know, this vision behind the Olympics being a a force for peace, mm-hmm. that there's some evidence that it actually could be. Um, and, and I think, you know, we have a lot to live up to in terms of the current Olympic and Paralympic movement. But it, it's certainly an ideal that still exists today. So definitely. So that brings us to the end of the ancient Olympic games, but how did we find out about them? How did the revival happen? We're going to cover that in the next episode, but uh, Sarah, why don't we go ahead and bridge the history a little bit and talk some about the, um, you know, the discoveries that led to the revival.
1: All right. The discovery and revival. So we're going to skip forward quite a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the original area of the games was covered up over time. And of course there were floods, but as you said, we normally learn about history by digging stuff up. So archaeologists have discovered the remains. Uh, unfortunately there's just a few ruins that are now there. Um, in 1766, English archaeologist Richard Chandler identified the site of Olympia Using ancient texts from traveling geographers like Pausanias. 50 years later, French archaeological teams were among the first to start digging. And in 1828, France joined in the Greek Wars of Independence and wanted there to be a scientific side to their supporting expedition. Some hmm. of the team worked in the heart of Olympia. There were uncovered remains of a huge temple, possibly for Zeus and 1875 rolls around and German groups led the archaeological expeditions and found the remains of the stadium's contours. Weapons were found. Figurines were found there too. Maybe they were souvenirs. Maybe they were good luck charms.
0: (laughs) I like to think that they were souvenirs.
1: (laughs) I would think so too. I mean, we saw souvenirs at Olympics now. Um, Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. Maybe they were early mascots.
1: Oh, I like where we're going with this. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan of the mascots. Um, but the Olympics, as we know them, were reborn thanks to Pierre de Coubertin, which, as you said, we will, we will be talking about him a lot in the future. Um, Good old you, Pierre. Yeah. If you don't know Pierre, you're going to get to know Pierre. He is an yep. old buddy. Uh, he was a sportsman <laughs> and a historian, and he wanted to make them an international event. In 1896, the modern Olympics began in Athens. Twelve nations took part, and the Olympic movement, as we know it, began. And it was centered around the idea of uniting people through sport.
0: Yeah, and again, we'll talk about this on the next episode, but it really kind of happened at the perfect time in history, where you had this rise in interest in sports, and you also had this rise in uh, interest of the ancient Greek culture and those two things just kind of merged at the right time but uh, but we'll get to Coubertin and his epic mustache more on the next episode where we will dig into the series events that led to the resurrection of the Olympic Games because uh, spoiler alert it wasn't just Coubertin there were some others involved who have kind of been forgotten about and we want to make sure that they get mentioned too uh, but It really became the first true international sporting event ever. And so that's where we're going to wrap things up for today.
1: All right. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can help share the Games Odyssey by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. You can also find us online at gamesodyssey.com where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter for more Games Odyssey content. That's the word games and odyssey, O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y.com. You can find us on our Facebook page, The Games Odyssey Podcast, on Instagram, at Games Odyssey Pod, or on Twitter. You guessed it, Games Odyssey Pod.
0: And just so that you know for looking ahead, even though this is a weekly podcast, at the time that we are releasing this, we are in between the Beijing Olympics and Paralympics. So... We will be taking a couple weeks off from releasing new episodes so that we can cheer on our favorite Paralympic athletes. We encourage you to do the same thing, and then we will uh, get back into releasing episodes talking about the modern Olympic movement. So over the next couple of weeks, if you're listening to this at release, uh, bear with us. Go cheer on your country. Go cheer on your athletes. And until next time, au revoir. The Games Odyssey podcast is a production of Wardrobe Media, LLC. This episode was written, hosted, produced, and edited by Jonathan Jordan and co-hosted by Sarah Patton. Show notes, including research sources and transcripts, can be found on our website, gamesodyssey.com. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Games Odyssey podcast is strictly for informational, commentary, and educational purposes. The Games Odyssey podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC and is not sponsored, endorsed, or officially affiliated with the USOPC or the International Olympic Committee or International Paralympic Committee. The content of Games Odyssey Podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in the Games Odyssey Podcast is accurate.